Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. But of course, you know that, and that is why you're here. And if you want to listen to this episode, it's probably because you've read the title that says something about investing in an SMSF. And that's exactly what I talk today, talk about today with Jeremy Yarnazelli, who is a our resident property and tax expert, or property tax expert, accounting expert. So we dig into all kinds of stuff. We have a little chat about start about inflation and the impact of that and what opportunities are out there. But more specifically, we dig into investing in an SMSF, when, how, why, what to look out for, all of that kind of stuff. So probably a lot of questions you've been asking yourself too. So if you've ever thought about investing in a self-managed super fund, if you've wondered about it, if you've thought, uh, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is, then this is an episode for you. So um, if you think this episode is valuable or if you think this could help someone just like you, then make sure you share that with a friend, family member, or loved one. Of course, make sure you like, rate, review, and and on all of the platforms. And if you've got any questions or topics you'd like us to cover, send us an email to til at dash dot com dot au. All of that being said, let's get stuck right into it, and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is Jeremy Yarnazelli, and we're going to be talking about all things investing in self-managed super funds. But before we get to that, Jeremy, how are you? Mate, very well, very well. Heading into a uh, closing down of a 30 June 22 financial year, ready to start the new one as well. Yeah, totally. Must be busy time for you guys. Uh, it is, mate. Wrapping all the loose ends up, uh, a little bit of planning with clients, planning for our own business and uh, uh, yeah, looking forward to a really good 30 June 2023. Yeah, totally. I think it's going to be, um, I personally think we're, we're going to be in a really good financial year in 2023. I think it's going to be interesting. There's obviously a lot going on in the economy. There's a lot going on in interest rates. There's a lot going on in the minds of investors. There's a lot going on for businesses. There's a, there's a lot. There's a lot happening at the moment. <laughs> um, what is, tell me, before we get, before we start talking about SMSFs, I'd love to um just get your take on it from a you know, you, you've obviously got a unique perspective on the market, both as an accountant and investor, someone who deals with thousands of property investors, all that kind of stuff. You've been through a couple of cycles. What's your take on the current environment, you know, with interest rates rising and all of that kind of stuff? What's your worldview on that? Yeah, we've just obviously had a, uh, a quite a large jump, a half a percent increase, which is the biggest increase in 22 years. But I think we've got to capture that in context. Yes, it is the biggest increase in 22 years, but our rates are still at present being uh, 0.85%, which is historically probably still very low in, in the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It's not even 1%. The cash rate is not even at 1%. I remember not that long ago when the cash rate dropped below 1% for the first time and everyone was having a meltdown because they were like, oh my God, the cash rate's gone below 1%. <laughs> yeah, and we're still below where we were pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. So we there's still still a, a lot of room there for people still to capitalise and then, you know, potentially room there for interest rates to go up. But, you know, in the long term, interest rates will settle and they will settle to make sure that that target inflation is between 2 to 3%. And people need to price in that interest rates probably will get to two to three percent in the long term, and that's where you know economics has proven to find its equilibrium. Um, for me personally, I, I see it maybe as a little bit of an opportunity for for 
people's fear or capitalizing on people's fear, which is a terrible thing to do, very opportunistic. But nevertheless, as, as investors, that's what we look for. Mm. And what I do feel um, is that obviously with inflation, uh, inflation of cost of, of living, inflation of commodities, inflation of rents, all the staple items that we need to live, our wages will increase. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, within male client base, we've got quite a large amount of clients that we do see. It's not uncommon now for me to hear my clients saying they're jumping around between jobs and getting a $50,000 plus pay rise. Yeah. Now, what that does do is it compensates for the level of increasing costs. Um, it's not going to be around forever. We're not going to be paying $253 of fuel forever. It will come down as the supply meets its demand. And many other things will be the same. You know, they're talking about lettuces, iceberg lettuce being $12 for a, 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 you know, a lettuce. Now, it, again, weather, a couple other things in there, but not going to be around forever. Lettuce, lettuce will continue to grow, and it's just a matter of matching that supply with the demand. So it's about capitalizing and going back to the old theory of investing that Warren Buffett and so many people use his quote, you know, get in when others get out and get out when others getting in. This is a great time for me to get in. And I did it back in 2009, post-GFC. People didn't want to touch investing and I jumped in with both feet. I did it back in 1819 when people were fearful about negative gearing under a Labor government. Mm. And it looks like, again, I'll be doing it in 22-23 with you know, people's fear in interest rates. So as long as you're make, making sure that the bottom line's been met, um, we're in a long-term game here. And I can guarantee you that you know, over the long term, the cost to replace these assets is only going to increase substantially. So that means that the value of these assets will increase. Yeah, totally. Um, as we as we all start to go through the economic cycle for the years to come, so opportunities around the corner. Um, people with some good borrowing power, this is an opportunity to pick up. You know, something at a bit of a discount, um, but making sure that you maintain your bottom line on your investments. Totally. I think I think it's um it's pretty interesting because you know as you've kind of pointed out there, obviously inflation is not going to last forever, right? And interest rate rises aren't going to last forever. In fact, I had to look back over you know the last sort of thirty years of interest rate. Right? They've obviously there's been periods where they've gone up two three percent or whatever in in pretty short periods of time, but they don't they only ever tend to go up for about two years max, and then they come down max. You know, sometimes even shorter. So that kind of like transitory period that you're talking about is is I think you know pretty pretty accurate of what's what's likely to happen in the market uh, as well. But they're already talking about signs of peak inflation having passed. You know, there already there's already signs that you know computer chip uh, processing chip prices have come down. Spot prices for shipping containers have started to come down. Now they're leading indicators. They were the leading indicators that were going into inflation, right? And so that's could be a leading indication that, that that kind of stuff is going to tail out as well. So, and I think you're right, you know, at the, the, the end of the day, the fundamentals that are driving the property market aren't really changing. And as long as you're investing well and making sure that, as you said, you're meeting the bottom line, buying properties that have got the right level of yield to make sure you're meeting the bottom line, that you're not putting yourself underwater, all of that kind of stuff, then going against the tide of consumer sentiment is where the opportunity lies. And I think that- 100%. And and people also got to factor in that if there are potential wage increases to come into the market, and I know employers are are willing to pay for good people, uh, productivity- then you know you'll we'll find that that cost of living matches the increase in income that you are receiving. Um, it's the just other, just getting through that short term period. Totally. The other side of things as well is rents are rising faster than they've ever risen before, right? So they've risen by twenty, by ten to twenty percent in in most areas over the last. Over yeah, the last and, and I'm hearing that across the board, but I'm also telling people at the same time, and we'll use Queensland as a great example because I've been through the various rent cycles there and New South Wales, but we'll look at Queensland. It's been compressed from a rental point of view for the last six or seven years. Mm. 
uh, myself included and many clients haven't been able to lift rent for you know that that period of time so what we're seeing is a compression and then now a release of that compression where rents yeah. are starting to move and it's not uncommon that i'm seeing people as a tenant leaves a new tenant coming on board with an additional 80 to 100 dollars a week rent that's an extra four to five grand a year Mm. And it's happening in Sydney and it's driven purely again by supply and demand. We've got to go back to the fundamentals of economics. When there's high supply, low demand, we get a decrease in price and the opposite increases. What I'm also trying to explain to people as well is that as our costs are increasing, costs for construction, labour, trade and all those other things, people won't be rushing into building new properties. So that means that you'll find there'll be a huge amount of demand for the existing properties to be let it out and therefore finally new south wales and it is starting to see an increase in rental returns and it has to happen because yep. our average yields at the moment we'll talk about here in sydney not uncommon to see an average gross yield um, of anywhere between two to three percent now mm. historically speaking that's quite low considering rates will always balance back out at hopefully anywhere between four to five percent so what we'll see is rents increase which therefore will increase that gross yield we may see a bit of a correction depending on how much that is on the top line of the purchase price, which means that our gross yield increases again, and mm. therefore the cycle starts. So it is a big circle and people need to recognize that it's a big circle mm. and it hits the top, it hits the bottom, and then comes back to the top again and continues to move in an upward spiral, spiraling adjustment. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So this is a that's a great segue then to be because we're thinking now about the future. We're saying okay, this is a, it, it continues to spiral off into the distance in an upward trending cycle. So as people are thinking about the future, a lot of people are you know some people are thinking what do I do with my super? Should I put that into an SMSF? Some people who are active investors outside their SMSF are going great. I'm buying properties outside my outside of super, but I've got all this money. Can I save it there? Um, at the particularly at the moment, you know the share. The share market is not performing particularly well. So, and a lot of, when a lot of people have got their money invested in super funds that could be getting invested in shares, they might not be seeing the returns they want there. And they're thinking about potentially, should I be investing in my super into into investment properties? And I'd love to kind of dig into that too as well. And I know that there's some stuff you can and can't talk about it's when it comes to it comes to comes to this topic. But what what are the basics? You know, when should when should someone be thinking about? When does it make sense to to invest in in an SMSF? Um, again, based it's based upon their personal goals and objectives, their financial incentives for themselves and their retirement. But I, I can go back and we'll talk about history. Now I look at our firm and we manage you know a quite a large number of self-managed super funds we manage quite a large number of clients who invest in property in self-managed super funds um, and I look at when the times of when I've when we've established a large portion of SMSFs they were at times similar to this interesting so in, in 2009-10 post GFC people couldn't get borrowing their own names they saw a great uh, opportunity to invest in property so we saw a lot of establishments of SMSFs and people then bought property in 2009 and, and saw their balancing in a self-managed super fund double in that period of time where things, when things were quite flat. Uh, I look in 2018-19 when APRA came in and really crunched lending, people saw a self-managed super fund as another avenue to gain borrowing and buy property. And again, if they bought in 2018-19 in pretty much any state of the, of the country, They've almost would have doubled their uh, yeah. their property price. So in in essence, sometimes they're getting a compounding return of two or three hundred percent on the initial capital that they injected into the self managed super fund to purchase a property. So that's the the timing of the events. It's when people have found it a bit tough mm. to get and obtain borrowing, they want to continue their investment journey. The SMSF Libra has opened that up to them to do it. 
And then from there, with the right purchases, I've seen some really, really great returns. A um, couple things to think about for obviously mostly many people is the tax incentives involved around super. That's in super in general. You know, to have an entity where it's taxed at 15% on earnings and contributions, it's just amazing. Yeah. You know, the government's opened that up so we don't have a reliance on the pension system to support the retirement of our, you know, our older population. It's so you can support yourself. So with a 15% tax rate, wow. Wow. You know, it's it, you're coming to become one of the lowest tax rates at, across you know, the, the developed countries. And then if you are investing in super and whether that is an, an investment into property or an investment into shares or, or other things um, that you can invest in legally in super, if you hold it for longer than 12 months, you get a one-third discount. Now, what yeah. a one-third discount means accompanied by a 15% tax rate is you're paying tax at 10% on the top line of the gain. So if you make $100,000 as a capital gain from, say, selling a property, that means the tax on that hundred grand is only ten percent, ten thousand. You know, so what people also need to understand is, while super's locked away for the date of our retirement, a lot of my wealthier clients actively try to find ways to build up their super via non-concessional contributions or concessional, meaning deductible or non-deductible, and they actively want to try to grow as much wealth as they can because it's like a treadmill. Yeah. Um, you know, you're getting better bang for your buck in the long term having investments deriving income in super than you are in your own name. And why? Two things. Obviously, the lower tax rate being number one. And two, if you go into pension phase, i.e. retirement phase, um, and you're under the $1.6 million cap at that time. Now, that's that's as of the legislation today. That may change in the many years to come. Yeah. But if you are under that $1.6 million cap, if you've got you know, a portfolio worth 1.5 mil returning 10% at 150,000 a year gross, take away some expenses, whatever it may be, you, you might be getting 120 grand net with no tax on it at the day of retirement. So it just makes sense for people to, you know, to actively try to grow uh, their superannuation balance via self-manage or via industry fund in their chosen asset class. And it's a second to none in terms of tax incentive. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, can we take a little step back though and go like, yep. what actually is a, an SMSF? Like, what actually is a self-managed super fund versus a normal super fund? Like, what's the basics? Let's start with the basics because some yeah. people might be listening to this going, hang on a second, Jeremy's telling me I only pay ten percent tax. Like, yeah, what, what? Yeah, let's go, <laughs> right? But but actually, what what actually is an SMSF and how do how do people go about um, setting one up? Or what's yeah, the kind so of basic self-managed stuff? Self-managed super fund goose. It's an entity which you establish and essentially. Yep. It's outside the realms of the industry funds, your Hestas, your C buses, your Colonials, your Aware Super, and it's an entity which you control. You're the one making the financial decisions. You're the one cherry picking the investments. Rather than going into a pool of thousands of people and you've got advisors on the other side which are trying to allocate where they want to put that money and it's kind of a best fit for all, you're choosing a best fit for one or a best fit for that entity. Um, so that's the basics of a self-managed super fund. You're in control of your financial destiny. You're paying the bills. You're choosing the asset class. You're picking the investments. You're dealing with the advisors. You're dealing with the accountants. And you're responsible for 100% of the compliance and investment decisions. So that's the basics of it. Mm. Um, depending on how you want to invest in super, it dictates the type of structure that myself or a financial planner or a solicitor can do for you because if you are looking to invest just purely the capital, that's a certain structure. If you are looking to obtain funding via the limited recourse borrowing arrangement, yep. and what limited recourse borrowing arrangement is, it's a very strict way 
of the way banks can lend money to an asset in super. And it was developed as part of an instalment warrant many years ago, you know, typically brought upon by the T2 split when Telstra and Telecom changed. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a precedent that was brought in. And that's where people use that precedent to then obtain funding. And the banks caught on and said, wow, this is a great way to uh, open up another channel and avenue to allow people to borrow. Um, but that, if you're looking at a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, then there's a certain structure that the banks want to see with a custodian and a bear trust, or otherwise yep. known as a custodian trust. So you need to make sure you're talking to the right professionals to ensure they're setting you up with the right structure to do that, um, because you'll find that many banks will not lend money to you without that structure being in place. Okay, I, w- I want I want to come I want to come back to I want to come back to the borrowing bit there, right? Because we've gone quite technically. I want to come back to the borrowing piece because you you asked you mentioned something earlier, but before we get there. One of the things to kind of kind of tackle, right, is when people see. So you've got right. So everyone's got a super fund, right? If you're working, you've got a super fund. Now your choices are: Do I put my money with somebody else, and they've got a whole team of experts who go and invest that capital, and you know, I get whatever the outcome is, or do I effectively take on that responsibility myself and self-manage that outcome? Do you need any kind of expertise to do that? Like, do you, is there anything that says like, what you know? Who, who, what if you've got no experience investing? Like, like, is there any, like, how does, how do people kind of come, uh, tackle that? And is there kind of a minimum, is there a minimum requirement, you know, for it to make, even make sense? Like, if I've got $5,000 in, in super, would it, that, would that make sense to be, to do it in SNSF or, you know, how do you think about that? So the, the minimum requirement from ASIC's point of view is anywhere between that 200 to 250 mark. Ideally, the more in super that we have, the better choice of asset we can, we can obtain. Mm. Anything below that, you really need to make sure that fundamentally the asset that you're seeking matches the capital requirement that you have. And, you know, if your your goal's out there to go buy a hundred thousand dollar investment property, well then obviously you'll need a lot less in super to do that. But you've mm. got to obviously maintain the quality and then factor in well, was that the right investment decision for what I'm wanting to achieve. Yeah. So like anything in life, more money we have, more doors we can open. Yep. Um, I like to see minimum 250. Um, nevertheless, I've, you know, we've, as per advisory from the uh, clients and financial planners, they've established it with a little bit less because yep. there's been a certain strategy that they wanted to obtain. So, you know, we, we do ensure that people have a number of different professionals that they can chat to prior to making this large financial decision, uh, which then reverts back to the second part of your question is, well, do you need to have a strong investment background to make it work? The answer is it helps, no doubt about it. The more savvy you are, you know, the more uh, more knowledge you have about investing. Obviously, the better type of asset one can purchase. But there are professionals that you can have. You know, there's buyers agents, which, you know, you you do quite a bit of investing. Obviously, for many clients around Australia, mm-hmm. there's financial planners, um, accountants. There's a array an array of invest an array of professionals that you can engage to help you make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Now, without people knowing it, in in most circumstances. They're paying for those professionals already via the industry fund. It's just that they don't see it. They're not the one paying the bills. Without looking at your statements every uh, quarter, half year or year, you're not seeing where the admin fees are, which go towards obviously the, um, the, the planners that the big super funds use. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, makes sense. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you've seen a lot of SMSFs get set up and get utilised and all of that kind of stuff when uh, in times when people have had, you know, reached kind of maybe – roadblocks or whatever in personal borrowing. So, and you started to talk about borrowing there a little bit, limited recourse borrowing and all this kind of stuff. How is investing in an SMSF 
different to investing on your own? Does it does it factor in your own income? Is it or is it treated completely separately? Or why is it that if somebody has maybe hit a roadblock in their own personal investing, that they might be able to invest in an SMSF? Mm. Well, I won't dive too much into the broker specialty, but yeah, I've, fair I've, enough. Yeah, yeah. From okay. personal experience, uh, yeah, it, it's not taken on the back of your own personal borrowing capacity. Yeah. The self-managed super fund itself has its own personal borrowing capacity. That capacity consists of obviously the investment that you're buying and the income attached to that investment Mm -hmm. and the amount of contributions that you're making to the self-managed super fund. So ultimately speaking, the higher income that you earn, the more statutory amount of super that goes in. So therefore, yes, your borrowing capacity will be a bit higher than someone on a 50,000 salary compared to a 100,000 salary. Yep. Um, at the same time, if you can make additional contributions and show a history of making additional contributions, then that will also be factored in to, uh, to the borrowing capacity of the super fund. So the bank's ideally wanting to see that, A, if we give you a loan for 25 years for your super fund, is the investment income in combination with the contributions enough to pay down that debt over that many years? And if the answer is yes, then that's when the door opens to obviously buying with inside a superannuation structure. Mm. That's uh, really that's really interesting, right? Because a lot of people probably aren't thinking about it like that. Their super contributions are in fact an income stream. So you've got your SMSF, which is set up effectively. Easiest way to think about it is it's its own business, right? So it's like, right, so you've got this business that is your self-managed super fund. And then you've got your the superannuation contributions, which come from your employer. That is a revenue stream or an income stream for that company, that business that, it, that you've got set up. And then if it was to go and buy any other assets and go in there, any other income that those assets would generate would also be an income stream for 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 that business, right? So it's kind of like a standalone ind- independent kind of thing. So that naturally lends itself to the idea that in order to maximize your opportunity in a SMSF, you probably want to go for higher income producing assets would probably make the most amount of sense, right? Uh, the yeah, the answer is yes, yes, and no. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you do want to have uh, an asset which produces the best level of return you possibly can get. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you do want to have a combination of growth. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, an industry fund will have its assets in shares, which return obviously return and capital, yep. and also the growth as well. If you can find an asset where there is good growth, yeah, um, then ideally that's fantastic in combination with rental return. Um, you don't want to just have an asset that has all capital growth uh, and and potentially no rental return. Because if you want to keep that asset, you need to be able to facilitate holding that asset. And then when you do retire, you want to obviously live off the cash flow that it provides. Yeah. At the same time, to really rapidly grow your asset base with inside the super, the asset needs to be growing at the same time. Yeah. So if you can find something that does both, brilliant. Um, But it depends on which stage you are. Um, So for me, I would like an asset, for me personally, I'd like an asset where it can maintain itself. Uh, at the same time, I'd like an asset which can substantially grow because I'm quite a while away from retiring. Yep. Although when I'm retired, uh, I'm not really caring about growth too much. I want to have and live off the cash flow that that asset provides. So mm. at that stage, I might change my strategy to to look at buying some assets where there is a very strong amount of yield. And that yield is obviously money that I can live from and retire quite comfortably. So your strategy will always change. It just depends where you are in terms of your working career, your investment strategy, and your financial circumstances. And that's why I personally like to uh, utilize financial planners to really scrutinize myself Mm. because I'm doing this on my own accord and I don't know 
you know, if everything that I'm doing is 100% correct. So I like to be abused by financial planners sometimes telling me that I'm wrong yeah. uh, or I need to consider something X, Y, Z because then I can implement that into my strategy and I evolve as my, as my financial situation evolves as well. Yeah. So there's, there's an array of things that you obviously want to make sure that you're getting the combination just right. Yeah, that makes sense. For your time. That makes sense. Now, we are proponents of buying properties which are cash flow positive or positively geared and in good growth locations, right? So that's there. But I want to ask about negative gearing, which is not something I usually ask about because I'm not mm. I'm not a big fan of negative gearing generally, right? I know it's got some benefits, but you know that's that's my perspective. From a on a personal level, yeah, if you're paying a lot of tax and you know, cool, there's the whole kind of tax argument for negative gearing. But if you buy an asset in your self managed super fund that doesn't produce a high enough yield. Does it can, can it negatively gear in there? How does that work? Or are you just yeah. going to end? Are you just going to end up with a shortfall that you need to make extra contributions towards? Well, yes and no. So the the super fund can have a negative geared asset, which does help reduce the tax the super fund pays uh, on the contributions. Uh, however, the tax rate on super is fifteen percent. So mm. you know, to spend a dollar and reduce the tax of the super fund by fifteen percent really means that there's an eighty five cent loss which yeah. yes, factored in from the contributions that need to make up the difference. So we don't want to have, uh, we don't want to try to aim for a negative geared investment in super because the tax incentives aren't there. And then there's obviously limitations to your investment strategy with the negative geared, say for instance, property in super, you're really banking on just one aspect, which is capital growth. Yeah. Uh, to me, that, that's a that's a big risk. That's my personal opinion for my personal investment strategy. It's a very big risk. I would like to have all bases covered, where if I'm not getting the capital growth I'm after, at least I'm getting the cash flow. Ideally, mm. in both worlds, I'm getting both. Um, but I, I would like to see you know both sides of the pendulum growing. If not, you know, then I don't want to just have one strategy completely pinned upon capital growth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, paper I, wealth is not not my personal investment. No, I, I couldn't agree more. It's about it's about having a healthy diet, the healthy balanced diet. I think, yeah, for sure. So, where do you see people going wrong with SMSFs? Then, um, look, I, I do see some people make the wrong decisions with SMSFs. They get too carried away too quickly, um, mm -hmm. and you know, I see a couple people they'll buy, you know, say an off the plan property in self managed super, uh, which is more of a lifestyle decision. Yeah. Um, and forgetting that it's not their asset, it's the super funds asset. It's for the benefit of the members, for the benefit of their retirement. Yeah. So I do see people make lifestyle decisions um, with their super as their investment strategy, and it goes horribly wrong in more cases than than not. So I think that's one thing to to look at. Your investment, your super, is not an investment for your lifestyle. It's an investment yeah. for retirement. So you really need to detach yourself and say the asset I'm buying is a number. It's not you know, sitting on a beautiful beach in a property that was owned by the super fund one day after a transfer is done at retirement phase. So yeah, you've got to really treat a self-managed super fund as a business and a business always needs to be profitable. And that's what's a healthy business. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And um, are there any other things that people need to know? Like if they're thinking, okay, cool, this makes sense, right? I, I want to, I want to super, I believe in property. I want to be a, like, I'm a property investor already. That makes sense to me. I want to do this. I want to get stuck into it. Let's say I've got a couple hundred grand in my super. Okay, this is sounding good. What other kind of things do people need to be thinking about or considering before they take that step? Or is there any other? Because I know, for example, 
um, you've got a higher deposit amount. For example, if you're going to go buy a property in uh, in your super, you've got a your lower LVRs and higher deposit amounts typically That's in right. a self-owned super. Is there any other things that people should be thinking about? Yeah, there's an, look, there's a, quite a number of things and there's too many to mention and I'm probably yeah. missed a couple. So what yeah. I'd probably say is I'll start with a couple of the basics that I think yeah. people need to consider. And these are the questions that I get you know, quite often. You can't construct in super with borrowing. So you can't go buy land and then you can't go to the bank and ask for a construction loan. Banks don't want you to take risks in super. Yeah. Um, so there's a, you know, a concept called the SIS Act, and that's what we have to abide by as accountants and auditors and members of a self-managed super fund. So you can't borrow for construction. You can construct using the money that's cash inside the self-managed super fund but you can't go to the bank and ask for a borrowing for construction. And that's a granny flat. You can't borrow for construction of a granny flat. Mm. You can't borrow for construction to do a huge renovation. So there are some limitations from a borrowing side of things. Yeah. Um, but, you can see, of- but you can still get the benefit from those things, right? So if you've got enough cash surplus in your SMSF and you want to do that kind of thing, then you can still get the benefit from it. So let's just say, for example, right, you bought a, uh, a, a battle act subdividable property, right? in your self-managed super fund and there was enough cash left over to be able to do the subdivision and build a second house on the back, right? You wouldn't be able to get any debt to complete any of that. So there's an argument to say that, that you know, it might not make a loss. But at the end of the day, then you're going to end up with the asset, mm. right? Can you can you then, and this might be treading into getting into broker territory and stuff like that, so maybe just your, your opinion is fine. But like, let's say you've, so you've got some leverage on the first property that you bought, then you've added cash, you've now got two assets, you've added a heap of value. Can you then go and leverage all of that and then kind of go again? So you can still get the net value out of it in the, in the end. Is yeah, that, good question. Thinking? So the second then is that you can't extract equity from what? yourself. You can't extract equity. You can't extract equity. So part of the, again, part of the SIS Act and the way that the banks are protecting under a limited recourse borrowing arrangement is that you are unable to extract equity from a self-managed super fund purchase. Hang on and a that- second. Can I just, can I, does that mean like if it stays inside the SMSF, right? So let's just say you buy one house, forget about the subdivision scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you buy a house for 500 grand and then yep. a few years later, it's worth a million bucks. So you got $500,000 yep. of equity in it. Yep. In that SMSF, can you refinance that property, take the equity out and buy another property in that SMSF? Or no. are you, or are you, is it, is it, yeah, for the start there. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, no. So you can't extract equity. So you can refinance between different banks, dollar for dollar, um, but you can't extract equity from a self managed super fund property. So the loan, in fact, in effect, will never grow. And that's again, you know, to really protect the member of the super fund so that potentially there can't be an overcapitalized asset. Uh, so that's one of the restrictions in there. So if you do want to capitalize, and, and I've seen some clients do it very, very, very well. They'll start with one property. That property will double in, say, six or seven years. They'll sell that. They'll then buy two properties. Those properties will double in six to seven years, and then they'll buy three properties uh, or four properties. And they're doing that by having to buy and sell. Yeah, okay. So the only way to access the equity in those properties is by selling the asset, liquidating the asset. Correct, correct. So it's a very safe, remember what the government, what APRA, what the banks, what the CIS Act is trying to create is a very safe way for you to invest and not lose your money. Because there's obviously lots of risk when you go into the bank, you extract equity, you then use that equity to go buy another property, property prices come down by 20%, all of a sudden you've got a 100% geared property. 
So what the banks are trying to do, and that's why they really try to get you to go in with a larger deposit, is to protect their investment, which is their loan, but mm. also in pseudo to protect yourself as a, a member of a geared super fund. So I always tell people, super funds, keep it very kosher, keep it very neat, keep it very basic and simple. The moment you try to start to get too creative with it, you'll find that there is too many levers. You've got to make sure you pull in at one time yeah. and there will be that one lever you miss and potentially the whole thing comes crashing down. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of you know really getting some good quality assets from the start. And if you do want to liquidate those assets and capitalize on the profit you've made to then buy two, well, then that potentially, you know, based on that person's strategy might be a good way to, to continue to build wealth in their super. Mm. So that's a little bit of the reasons as to why we say to clients, you know, before you start looking at a self-managed super fund, make sure you've kind of hit all your goals or you've, you know, you've hit your limits outside super because you can get creative with, you know, investments outside super, which is extracting equity and going again and borrowing for construction uh, where in super, things are, are very tightly held. There's a lot of regulations around it. Yeah, so that's an interesting perspective. So do you think people should, um, do you think if, if, let's say you're in a position where you can do both, right? You've got your personal strategy and you've got enough in super and you could do both. Is there any reason that you wouldn't just do both at the same time or, you know, because you kind of said there, maybe max out what you're doing in your personal life and then look at it. But is there any reason that you wouldn't sort of, Go, go both? No, you can do both at the same yeah. time. I've done both at the same time. Um, but, you know, you, you, I think that's how many how many plates of food can you eat at once, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. How many, yeah well, how many things do you want to juggle all at the same time? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's right. So, you know, it's and age is a big factor. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and also the, the capital that you have in the super funds is a big factor as well. You know, you don't want to – I think sometimes – you don't want to prematurely rush into something. If there's an avenue where you can wait, build up your your skills, or you know, build up your exposure, then it gives you just a better a better position to make the right decision moving forward. That's what I generally say for myself. Um, but at the same same side of the argument, no, there's no reason as to why you can't do both or one specifically. It really yeah. comes back down to that person, their individual goals, their investment strategy, and their financial yeah. circumstances. Makes sense. So what about the operating costs of of uh, self-managed super funds? You know, like g- as a general guide, right, as a general kind of guide or a rule of thumb, like how much does it cost to set up an SMSF? How much does it cost to operate an SMSF? Like because I know that um, that, that can have an impact for some people as well. Yeah, costs may vary, um, again, yeah. depending on what people want out of their self-managed super fund. But I think if you're establishing a self-managed super fund, you know, you've got to make an allowance of anywhere between, say, three, six, seven, or eight grand, depending on the type of strategy that you want to take. Yeah, Financial planners will be involved, accountants or solicitors will be involved. So there's you know, a, number of, a number of people which are there to help you establish it and make sure that you are doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, when a client comes to me saying, I want to establish an SMSF, well, I'll create a number of roadblocks to make sure that they're going to the right people to get the right answers. Mm. You know, so I'll make sure that they can actually borrow in their self-managed super fund if they're wanting to buy a property. So go chat with the broker first. Make sure that you've got enough contributions and capital to actually facilitate the purchase you're wanting to make. Because if you've got 200000 in super, but you want to buy a $10 million property, well, straight away, the broker will tell you it's, it can't happen. Yeah. Uh, then, I'll send, then I'll send clients to a financial planner to get a statement of advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that financial planner will run through you know, how their existing super fund is going. You know, Their proposed self-managed super fund, 
Are they aware that they might be getting a 7, 8, 9, 10% return in industry? Or they might be getting a 3% return in industry. Do they believe they've got the skills or the people around them to beat that? Um, you know, the time involved with a self-managed super fund, the type of assets they can invest in. So I'll send them to someone so they're getting a really uh, good combination of skills and knowledge. And then from myself, once I've seen, you know, a number of ticks, then we can look at establishing the SMSF and I'll work out, well, what type of investments do they want to be buying? Mm. Um, and then obviously tailor the structure for them so they can complete their investment strategy. Ongoing costs, um, look, that again varies depend on, depending on the complexity of the self-managed super fund. I've got clients where there's multiple properties and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of shares and you know, it could be hundreds and, or thousands of transactions. So you might find the cost of that is, is much higher compared mm. to someone just buying one property. But I would probably say on average that people need to make an allowance of anywhere between two and a half as a low end, all the way up to five or six as a medium end, depending on, again, yeah. what they're Number doing. Number of properties, complexity, personal yeah, situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's but a good, I have that's seen, a good general seen guide. super funds much, much higher than that um, when they start to enter into pension phase or various different investments. So you know, I think if you can make an allowance of about 1.8 to 2 or 2.2% as an admin fee of running your super fund based yeah. on your balance, yeah. I think that's healthy um, as a bit of a provision. Yeah, that's a that's a good general rule of thumb, and that's kind of all I was after. Like a general rule of thumb, like one point eight to two percent as a kind of operating expense to kind of keep the wheels turning. That's a that's a good that's a good guide. Um, I know you said you've got a list that's way too long to possibly list everything else, but touching on the um the construction one there was was pretty good. That was a bit of an eye opener. What what have you got any other nuggets that we can drop in there? Yeah, so l- lots of people ask, well, what else can I invest in? <clears throat> you know, can I invest in artwork? Can I invest in gold? Can I invest in silver? <clears throat> Sorry, my apologies, mate. Yes, the answer is you can. As long as uh, it's for the benefit of the um, of the member at their retirement, then the answer is yes, you can invest in those things. I've had some wild ones saying, can I invest in antique cars? Well, if you deem that antique car and you've spoken to a planner and there's a statement of advice around it and you think it's a good investment, then yes, you can. But you can't get the use of it today as a member. It's always for the retirement of the individual member. So, you know, you can't buy that painting and hang it up in your home. You can't buy that antique car and drive it around on the weekend. You can't buy that house, you know, on the beach as an investment and just use it on the weekend. It always must be for the benefit of the member. Okay. So that's pretty interesting, right? That's an interesting quirk, right? Because uh, like in theory, right, you've got the SMSF, which is its own independent business and company, right? And let's just say you went and bought a home, right? A house. Could, could be a holiday home, could be a whatever. And then you decided that you wanted to be a tenant of that, right? Could you technically do that as long as you were paying? Like, so let's just say it was a, yeah, let's just say you bought an apartment in Sydney, right? For, for just for argument's sake, right? The SMSF has bought the apartment. But then you, as an individual, wanted to become the tenant of it and you potentially paid rent back to the SMSF. Yep. Can you do that? Like, I like to play with a straight bat and the answer is no. No. <laughs> it, it's still obtaining a benefit for the member. Got it. Now, could that member have bought that property on the, in their own accord? Probably the answer is no. So the super fund buying that property and they paying rent to the super fund, it's, they're obtaining a benefit because they're living in a property that you know, otherwise they wanted to live in themselves. So I like to pay straight bat, and the straight bat is that you know super fund is not there to help yourself uh, today, not there to help your family members. It's there 
for the benefit of the member for retirement. So no, you can't be buying that holiday home and you renting it out yourself personally. External, third party, an auditor will want to look into it and make sure that, you know, is this really for the benefit of the member for their retirement? I use that word all the time because yeah. I'm really trying to reiterate to anyone listening that, you know, you don't get, you don't get uh, funky or crazy or silly mm. and super fun. You play with a straight bat as much as you can. Yeah, it's heavy, it's a heavily regulated kind of you know part of the part of the whole kind of financial ecosystem, and for good reason too. Like you know, I think it, I, yeah, yeah. I, I I support it. So now I don't not certainly not encouraging anyone to go and try and find all the cracks and crevices. But it is oh, interesting. There's, there's interesting lots. Thing. Yeah, yeah, mate. There's lots. There's a, there's a list of things you can't do. And again, you know, the constant communication you'll have with your accountant and your advisor. You know, they'll make sure that you are heading in the right direction. I just think the main thing that people need to focus on when they are, and if they are looking to do a self-managed super fund is pick a good investment. This is for your retirement. Yeah, This is for you to enjoy the better things in life as you start to age. And you want to give it the best crack. You yep. want to have the best investment in there. And you want to make sure that you're getting the best returns as your, as your strategy for investment changes over time. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, remind me, what's the what's the minimum age that people can tap into their SMSF? So there's obviously, you, I've seen members who are below the age of eighteen into a self managed super fund that needs to yep. be obviously with a guardian. Um, but you know, generally speaking, there's no minimum age essentially as long as you're you know working, contributing to it, then you, you're fine on that level. Yeah. Um, you know, you can have a super fund at the age of 15, 16 as yeah. When you work a little part time job and you earn over the certain amount of money for the statutory comp- contribution, you know, you start contributing to super. But I, I think it comes more to a minimum balance uh, based on your investment strategy mm. more than a minimum age. Yeah, got it. And um, what's the minimum retirement age so that you can actually start to, like if you buy that, if you buy that holiday home now, but you can't live in it, when are you, you going to be able to start getting the benefit as a member? So as a member for retirement, that is changing all the time. It's kind of like a, a rolling yeah. graph. But 65, as, when you're born at a certain date, 66 and a half, 67 and a half, 68. Yeah. I'm sure it will change and we'll be working till we're 70 before we can tap into it. Um, now, at the same time, if you are you know, wanting to buy a home and you're wanting to one day get it transferred to yourself from the super fund, it, it's not that you can live in the super fund asset at that time when you're retired. There's a certain strategy to getting the property out of super and into your own name. Ah, interesting. Yeah, because remember, the whole purpose of the super fund always is to benefit the members. Yeah, yeah. Is to benefit the members. Not just benefit them as a place to live. But- That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, okay, awesome. And who sets up, who's the best person to set up an SMSF? Who's the, you've mentioned speaking of financial planner and stuff like, but, you know, is it is it someone like you, Jeremy? Is yeah, it an accountant generally who sets it up? Accountants. Generally, accountants yeah. will set it up. Um, you know, we've got a very streamlined process of the way of doing it. Financial planners do set it up as well. I've seen them charge a bit more of a premium compared to uh, what we do because we're the ones who do all the applications for with the tax office and the ABR. Um, but generally accountants and solicitors, they're the people that do set it up. And it's just making sure that you're getting a person or a professional who knows what they're setting up in lieu of what you're aiming to achieve. I've seen many people set up self-managed super funds and go to buy a property and all of a sudden they haven't got the right structure to buy a property with the custodian entity being in place. So yep. you want to go to someone who's been there, done that track record and can kind of get you going uh, straight away from the start. Awesome. Love it. And so if someone if if someone has listened to this and they're going, yeah, okay, sounds good. I'm into it. And they want to set up an SMSF and they want to reach out to you. How do they do that? 
Uh, they can reach out to us uh, on our uh, website, ktripartners.com.au, um, or they can uh, get in contact with yourself, Goose. And, you know, we help many mutual clients, making sure that they're all doing the right thing. So it, there's either avenue, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Mate, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been eye-opening. I've learned a couple of things out of this as well, which is good. <laughs> and I'm sure it's been beneficial to the listener. Mate, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, mate. It's uh, fantastic. I think for many people out there, um, especially coming back to the uh, economic discussion that you and yeah. I are having, uh, is that you know don't be too worried about interest rates as they are at the moment. All you've got to do is maintain your buffers. You've got your stress tests in there as well. When the banks do service you, they do service you on a, a bit of a higher rate. Um, so in life, if we've got an extra cost on the left with something maybe that we have to streamline on the right, it's always about balancing the budget. That's what the government's been trying to do for many years without any success. Yeah. Um, but us as individuals, we're a much smaller entity. So it, it does become easier to balance the budget when we're in tune with our income and our expenses. Uh, there will be opportunity out there, 100%. I know I'll be looking uh, into the market very closely over the next six and 12 months because I think there'll be a great opportunity for me to buy. I've parked some money on the sidelines in anticipation for this. Mm. Um, so where you know someone might not have uh, the kahunas to uh, to hold during a little bit more of a volatile time, mm. uh, I think if you fundamentally assess the property and you think that it's got a good longevity in it, then it might be a good opportunity to to look to purchase. Perfect. Couldn't agree more. Mate, um, always enjoy our chats. Really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you on the show again. Thanks, Goose. Take care, mate.